0: The flapper awoke from her lethargy of sub bobbed her hair, put on her choicest pair of earrings, and a great deal of audacity and rouge, and went into battle. She flirted because it was fun to flirt, and wore a one-piece bathing suit because she had a good figure. She covered her face with powder and paint because she didn't need it, and she refused to be bored, chiefly because she wasn't boring wrote Zelda Fitzgerald in her Eulogy on the Flapper, 1922. With her short skirt and iconic bob haircut, the 1920s flapper is an icon of a time of remarkable socioeconomic and political change. Characterized as reckless and disgraceful by older generations, these young women emerged from the ashes of the First World War with the right to vote and the desire to live free and fulfilling lives appropriating male privileges as their own, whether that meant driving, smoking in public, or drinking whiskey. Over the last century, many parts of the world have seen the breadth of female autonomy in both the home and the workplace transformed. But women still face many obstacles, lingering stigmas, pay gaps, and power dynamics inhibiting true equality. Yet new flappers have risen, even before the ongoing pandemic, we saw the MeToo movement reassess gender norms, workplace gaps, and even bring down long-established tycoons. The collapse of normality during the pandemic, however challenging, presents an opportunity to make things better for future generations. The choices individuals and companies make now will reshape the economy and the workplace for decades to come. I'm Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast brought to you by the PICTE Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. First of all, happy International Women's Day to you all. Today we bring you Women in Times of Change, an episode produced in association with the PICTE Women's Network. We'll discuss the role of women in a changing economy, the importance of female role models in leadership positions and what we can do as businesses and individuals to even out the playing field. We are joined by three of the world's most distinguished female leaders in their respective fields. Broadcaster and former assistant editor of The Times, Marianne Sieghardt, whose recent book explores the topic of women in authority. Bipa Malmgren, an award-winning author of two leadership business books, a startup entrepreneur, former White House economist, and a World Economic Forum fellow. And finally, our own Elif equity partner of the Bita Group and co founder of the Bita Women's Network.
1: Do you think we're living in times of change? And are you optimistic of where this is taking women? Maybe, Pipa, you want to start?
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much. We're living in times of extraordinary change. The pace of change is accelerating. You know, Buckminster Fuller, the engineer, noted that the pace of change was that information was doubling every century in the year 1900. And in 2020, IBM confirms that the amount of information is doubling every 12 hours. So the speed of change is so extraordinary, and it does require new ways of thinking. I'm personally incredibly optimistic about what's going to happen to the economy once COVID lifts. I think that we're on the brink of an extraordinary period of growth in modern history, rivaling the Industrial Revolution, but without the downside because we're smarter now. So um, I see fast change and a real need for creativity in the thought process.
3: Marianne, I think a lot is changing as a result of the pandemic, and I think we'll probably be talking about that later on in the podcast, so I won't go into that too much now. But I'm more interested in changes in our attitudes towards women. And I've just written a book called The Authority Gap. And what I'm saying is that although cosmetically it looks as if life is improving generally for women and more women are being appointed to top jobs and we're more aware of the gap between men and women, what we're not still aware of is the unconscious bias that leads us to rate men more highly than women, to take men more seriously than women. And in our everyday interactions, we still do that despite all the lip service that we pay to gender equality.
4: Elif? Uh, First of all, let me say um, it's such an honour to be in such distinguished company. In terms of times of change, definitely, none of the Management teams of companies that we invest in expected to have uh, a total shutdown of their activity last year. And suddenly, zero revenues was no longer just a startup uh, concept. As far as women are concerned, it's also very much of a time of change. And as they say, it would be a shame to let a crisis go to waste. At Peak Day, we were lucky enough to have a very talented DNI officer take up the job for the first time before COVID just hit. And we are ready to fully embrace change uh, on that aspect. I think compared to a decade ago or more, when I started um, my, my career, it was really expected that women should behave like men to be able to climb the corporate ladder. And this couldn't be further away from the truth today. And I think we all understand that it's the corporate culture we need to work on in order to allow men and women to express themselves in their own style. And this is why, you know, I think we have tremendous positive change ahead of us. Well, now that we have
1: each of your quite optimistic views on the current situation, let's take a step back and discuss the role of women in the economy, what's now called women economics. Mary Ann, there's this myth that women have only recently entered the workplace. But this is a reality of certain social classes and cultures. Women have always had to work, sometimes unpaid, most of the time unsupported, on top of motherhood. As a journalist who has often focused on gender, what roles would you say women have played in the economy over the centuries? And how has this affected today's social structures?
3: Of course, women have always worked. You know, They have not just brought up their children and cooked and cleaned and made clothes and looked after the sick. But they've actually gone out and earned money, unless they're in the you know, upper classes, by doing other people's laundry and cleaning and sewing and all that sort of thing for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries. And on top of that, they have always done more unpaid work than men. And now we have much more participation of women in the paid workforce. But not only are they paid less for the work they do in the paid workforce, but they do 60% on average more unpaid work than men do. So they're getting less money for the work that they do in the paid workforce, and they're doing a lot more unpaid work. So actually the real gender pay gap is quite a lot bigger than the gender pay gap that gets reported at the company level.
1: FIFA, you wrote a book on how if we open our eyes, there are small signals all around us predicting economic trends. Tell us a bit about how you came to write this, how it has shaped the work you do today. And as Marianne says, whether there are any signals indicating a shift in the role that women will play in the future.
2: Yeah, you know, and I suspect that part of the reason I was able to write that particular book is because I am a female. So in the world of economics, which is so quantitative and mathematical, when I was running strategy for some of the biggest investment banks in the world, I found that all of my peers were crunching numbers and showing the clients, you know, data points, and they were all guys, right? I was the only chief currency strategist or head of strategy of a major bank at the time. I was like, you know, what really matters is what are the stories, what are the policymakers saying they feel about, what they what they worried about, what they're going to act on, and so I became the person looking at the qualitative story rather than the quantitative data. And of course, the clients love the qualitative story much better. And I realized that actually as an investor, if you're using data, by definition, you're looking backwards. And so how do you look forward? I thought, ah, signals are basically data that's not yet confirmed. It's a way of identifying early indicators of what will be in the data, but is not yet And this is where the money is going to be made. Right. Because it's always this is the place where the future isn't fully discounted yet. So you can actually make a profit here. And the whole book was about how to see signals before it's confirmed by the data and the investment opportunity is lost. And I do think that, uh, you know, I, I would say it's not so much men versus women, but there's a feminine thought process versus a masculine. Masculine tends to be. Much more numerical, quantitative, mathematical, a feminine thought process, which many men have as well, tends to be more on the creative, uh, connecting dots, finding the story behind what what they're seeing. And again, really good leaders and good investors have both qualities, can do both men and women alike.
4: I was just going to say, you know, when I heard connecting dots, it's actually something that we talk about in our uh, investment process explanation to investors, that, you know, our focus is really around sort of, uh, connecting the dots and seeing the story before it becomes sort of a headline story. So that really resonated with me. You say uh, that men have these feminine qualities, too, and women
3: have these masculine qualities, because actually, I think the, the, the mistake that lies right at the base of gender stereotypes is the assumption that all women are a certain way and all men are a certain way. And actually, our brains are a mosaic of so-called feminine and masculine qualities. And hardly anyone is 100 percent of either. And most of us are just a mix. And some women actually have more so-called masculine qualities in their brain than feminine and vice versa. We're just all on this lovely mixed spectrum.
2: Totally. And I have to say the the evidence is clear. Great leaders. And great investors are highly fluid in their thought process and can move very easily. And that's one reason it's so important to have diversity of thinking, which is we don't have more women in the workplace because it's nice or because it's just or because it's fair, but because it's actually more profitable. You will get better performance because you will get more diversity of thinking.
3: In a much bigger talent pool
2: as well. Absolutely.
4: I was just going to throw in a few um, statistics in there. As somebody recently pointed out to me, uh, women account for over 85% of consumers' goods purchases and over 50% of business-to-business services. And so it's really imperative, and that is also true in our industry where, you know, they hold so much of the world's wealth as well, that we have bankers, products, services that uh, uh, resonate in terms of content, in terms of how they are delivered with the women's clients on the other end. Are there regions in the world or specific industries that are standing out in terms of female representation as being over or underrepresented, Elif? In terms of industry, in terms of underrepresentation, I think our own uh, in finance is uh, Uh, is a good example. There was an article, I think, in Morningstar talking about how amongst UK-listed funds, there were more funds managed by a man called Dave than there were funds managed by women altogether. So that is a kind of an example of how extreme it can get. I think they were actually doing much better than statistics. I mean, within the hedge fund business, I can think of four funds that are managed or co-managed by women, which is way above industry average and also in terms of regional leadership in our offices. Uh, We have a number of very high-profile offices in Asia, in the US, Italy, in Europe, that are managed by uh, women. So I think we're on a good trend there.
2: But I can give you an example as well of this. I co-founded a company in the drone manufacturing space, so aerial robotics. And the best performing pilots, it turns out, are women. State Farm, one of the biggest insurance companies in America, has pioneered managing fleets of drones with female pilots. And the reason is because the females are much more comfortable with autonomous flying. In other words, the thing flies itself, which, of course, is essential if you want to have really high quality data. If you have a manual pilot, the data is going to be uneven and and not steady. So, interestingly, women are much better at it. And why? Because they're okay with relinquishing control. And men (laughs) typically like the control. They want to drive the thing, whatever it is. But it detracts from the performance
1: because now you introduce human error. Marianne, we've talked about how different industries and different regions perform in female representation. In your research, have you come across different biases or stigma that might inhibit female participation in the workforce? Do you think these are changing? I think they're changing
3: slowly and probably more slowly than people realize. So I think there are two forms of bias that holds women back in the workplace. Uh, And then there's the third problem of motherhood. The first type of bias is that men tend to evaluate other men more highly than they evaluate women for exactly the same results so there was an interesting experiment done where there was an objective algorithm looking at people's performance and then there were humans men and women 70% of men rated men more highly than women for exactly the same performance the algorithm rated them identically and women rated them identically so you've got this problem that men on the whole tend to prefer other men and 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 maybe unconsciously this feeds through into them believing that other men are better than than women and since All men are in charge of promotions and hiring than women. Of course, this then feeds through, and this is why you see fewer and fewer women getting to the top as you look at any organisation. And the second one is that men tend to find highly competent women unlikable. Uh, I don't know whether it's because we threaten their self-esteem, whatever, for whatever reason, they tend to find highly competent women unlikable. And likability is a much more important factor in hiring and promoting women than it is in hiring and promoting men. So men are likely to be promoted for performance alone. Women have to be liked in order to be promoted. So this is a real double bind because the better you are at your job, more likely men, not women, but more likely men are going to find you unlikable. So you therefore, as a highly competent woman, the only way through is to combine your competence with a lot of warmth. So you have to be warm and funny, humour helps as well. So you have to, you have to sort of walk this very, very fine line to remain likeable while you're good at your job in order to be hired or to be promoted. Whereas men don't have any of these problems. The third one, of course, is parenthood, and women find that they are penalised as soon as they become mothers, whereas when men become fathers, they're actually more likely to be promoted. And there's a huge motherhood penalty. Now, I'm hoping that with the pandemic and the ability to work flexibly, which has now been proved for both genders, that this will be somewhat mitigated. That employers will realise that they can allow flexible working for parents, not just mothers, uh, and that this won't actually harm their productivity but has in the past really held women back. As soon as they have children, um, employers think they're no longer committed and they go on this mommy track and uh, they no no longer get promoted at the same rate as men. And the gender pay gap widens significantly as soon as a woman has a baby.
1: I read that you founded your own company when you decided to have children. Why did you do that? And what would you say to the woman who might not have that choice right now?
2: yeah again i had been an investment banker uh i'd been working in the white house where you know you're working 24 7. there is no you know having a baby and being in the white house is not consistent so when i left to start a family i knew that those environments were fundamentally hostile to parenthood and i think that's true for men too you know those are really brutal demanding very competitive environments so I realized, well, if I create my own company, instead of being employed by an investment bank, I can have an investment bank as my client. And that was a much easier relationship. And actually, I ended up getting paid more for the work that way than before. And I thought, wow, why did I do this before? But you know, to be fair, I was in a very privileged position because I'd been in the industry a long time. People knew me, they knew my work. You know, To start a business from scratch, without a reputation, without a customer base, that is a, is a real challenge. I started it when I already had both of those things well in place and something to deliver. I just was then free to do it on my own terms and, and I've been doing that ever since. And I do think being independent has a value. And so your ability to say what you actually think as opposed to um, you know, what is the standard line either within a firm or within an industry There's a value in that, too, and I was able to capitalize on it. So I recommend it, but it's a totally different life. And being an entrepreneur, whether you're a man or a woman, is a very different set of challenges. And that comes down to your personal character and what are you comfortable with and not comfortable with.
0: An excited murmur filled the marbled halls of the Vatican as the President of Ireland led a delegation of officials past galleries filled with timeless Roman sculptures and Renaissance frescoes. As she recalls later, in the audience room, Pope John Paul II, the world's leader of 1.2 billion Roman Catholics, extended his hand to the man on her right. Would you not prefer to be President of Ireland rather than married to the president of Ireland. He laughed loudly. Silence flooded the hall. Stepping forward, the second woman to ever hold this office reached for his hand herself. Let me introduce myself, she stated with a smile. I am the president of Ireland, Mary McAleese, elected by the people, whether you like it or whether you don't. This scene took place in 1999. Would it still happen today? Find out more about this story in Marianne Seeghardt's latest book, The Authority Gap.
1: So this is a question for all of you. There has been a lot of talk about how female politicians have handled the pandemic much better than their counterparts. To any of you who would like to answer, why do you think that is? I keep hearing about empathy, but historically female leaders haven't necessarily been nicer or more empathetic, as the bias would suggest. Think of Margaret Thatcher or India's first prime minister that was a woman in Gandhi. Do women actually lead differently?
2: So there's really interesting research on this now. There was recently a piece that came out that used 194 countries in the data set and adjusted for the per capita, the population size, the proportion of elderly adults, and found that the countries led by female leaders were systematically performing better than the ones run by men. Now, I agree with the statement that Margaret Thatcher, uh, and I remember those days, was not exactly the warmest, most compassionate leader around. But I do think modern leadership, in other words, women today and men today, understand that empathy and compassion is a critical component of leadership. And when you look at, for example, I'll take Boris Johnson in the UK, when he made the announcements about the lockdowns to do with COVID, the whole tone was very, I am the prime minister and I am telling you, these are the new rules that you must comply with. And then you listen to Jacinda Ahern out of New Zealand, and her whole approach was, we're all in this together. I'm just as clueless as you guys because we don't have any information more than you have. We're all going to do our best to hold hands together. I'm a mother. I appreciate how difficult this is for all of us and kids and everything. And it was the delivery. It was the tone. It was the attitude to the audience that made the world of difference. Now, could Boris Johnson have done it the, the Jacinda Ahern way? Absolutely but he didn't, and so therefore we started to see a split in the performance of how countries responded to COVID.
3: And what's interesting, I completely agree with all of that, Pippa, about the empathy, but also the great thing about the female leaders during this pandemic is that none of them have had that sort of blustering, overconfident, vainglorious approach to the virus, that Boris Johnson, but also Donald Trump, Jair Bolsonaro, you know, these men have acted as if somehow the virus uh, isn't as strong as they are, that their country is exceptional, that they can somehow get through in a way that other countries can't. I think that f- that female leaders on the whole have just been more humble and more realistic about it. And uh, so one study looked at this and asked, well, are they perhaps less risk taking? Interestingly, it's more nuanced than that, because they took fewer risks with people's lives, which is probably the most important thing. But they took more risks with their country's economies. And in the end, that paid off because, in fact, very early lockdowns meant that countries' economies suffered less as well as losing fewer lives. Um, well, but I think the empathy thing was very important. But also, I agree with what you said about Margaret Thatcher. It's a generational difference because when people like Margaret Thatcher or Indira Gandhi became uh, prime ministers, they were the very first women ever to do it and they were entirely surrounded by men and therefore they had to prove that they were just as strong as men and that you know of course they could have their finger on the nuclear button and they weren't going to be all sort of weak in the way that women were stereotypically seen to be in those days and I think the world has moved on uh, generationally and uh Jacinda Ardern herself has said actually that being the third female prime minister New Zealand's the only country in the world to have had three I believe has made it so much easier for her because she has nothing to prove in terms of strength and competence. She can just get on with the job in the way that she feels is right. And boy, has she done it well. She has. And let me pick up on this point.
2: There's a marvelous researcher at Harvard, a psychologist called Tomas Pramusic, who's done a lot of work on this fundamental issue of competence versus confidence. And what you find is that typically... Men will be very confident even when they're not competent. Uh, so, you know, if you ask typically a guy, are you ready for this next job? Like 90% of the time, they're going to go, yeah, yeah, I can completely do this. I got this thing. Women typically, even when they're 100% competent, will still hesitate to accept the promotion that they may be perfectly capable of. And so there's a confidence competence.
1: Gap. Well, confidence just, comes from seniority, right? Or, or privilege. It also comes with how, uh, how long you've been in a company. Elif, how does your seniority or your experience play into your respect as an authoritative figure, especially as a woman in the corporate world? Can you ask for respect as a young woman in lower ranks, for example?
4: Yeah, I, I really want to reflect on what uh, a speaker we had at uh, one of these events some six months ago said, Charlotte Hogg, she was saying um or pointing out that often sort of authority comes with this uh, word that's called sort of um, having gravitas. Uh, and when we talk about gravitas, we immediately imagine somebody who's very tall, wide-shouldered, you know, like a man figure. And for most women on average, it's difficult to live up to those sort of visual images. And often, therefore, instead of gravitas, women find that they have to be very um, precise and always right in terms of content. So there's a higher onus on getting the content right. And that sometimes can also inhibit risk-taking and not wanting to speak up because what if, you know, they don't have the right content and suddenly they're immediately discredited. The other thing I wanted to point out is that I often hear young women complaining about how, um, you know, when... Uh, they make a point in a meeting, uh, it gets unnoticed and, you know, a few minutes later you will have a male colleague making the same point and suddenly, you know, everybody's like, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, And it's really, therefore, important for senior people in the room to be uh, aware of that and give credit where it's due.
3: First of all, men tend to talk for a disproportionate amount of time. They tend to hog the floor uh, on average. And also they're much more likely to interrupt women than they are to interrupt men. And as a woman, if you're interrupted, I mean, that is the most frustrating thing, because first of all, it supposes that the person interrupting you thinks that what he has to say is more interesting than what you're saying. And secondly, it actually silences you. And I think if you're a senior person at that meeting, if you're chairing the meeting, you should come down really heavily on interruptions and say, no, I I wanted to hear what Elif was saying, actually, and stop men doing that, because it's, it's one of the most undermining things of women's authority, I think.
2: I think there's an easy fix for this, by the way. Here's just a a helpful tip for everybody listening. If you hold meetings based on whoever speaks first and loudest, and we've all been in those meetings, uh, you'll get one result. But if you say equal time, everyone gets this amount of time, what it does is it forces the blowhards to only have a limited window and then they have to go quiet, and it forces the quiet people which by the way, may not only be women, it may be minorities, it may be newcomers, it may be people who don't yet feel confident in that group. It forces them to speak. So if you start to hold meetings based on equal time, you'll fix this problem very quickly.
1: Marianne, I've heard you mention about the character Dr. Dana Scully starring in the X-Files as a doctor or paranormal detective. Um, When this happened, there was a steep increase of women working in STEM fields. Can you tell us about the importance of female representation in positions of power in popular media and why they matter?
3: It is amazing what a difference it makes. These sort of subliminal role models make the most enormous difference. So this study found that 63 percent of women working in STEM said that Scully was their role model. So one TV show that they had watched as a child had inspired them to move into STEM because she was the first female scientists properly represented on TV and it makes you realise just how important representation is and actually most women when they decide whether to take a job offer from a company will actually look at that company first and see how many women are in senior positions before they decide to accept. Uh, There was another study which I loved when young students were asked to give a speech and they were sort of very subtly exposed to photos of either Hillary Clinton, Angela Merkel, Bill Clinton, or no picture at all. And when the young women were exposed to Merkel or Hillary Clinton, they spoke for longer, and they spoke more eloquently than when they had either a male photo or or none.
0: Harriet Tubman defied established power in a way that few have. Born on a Maryland plantation around 1820, she lived 20 years a slave, the horror and abuse of her early life fanned a deep-rooted desire for justice. Aged 12, she intervened between a slave overseer and a fugitive, receiving a blow that fractured her skull and left her with lifelong headaches and acrolepsy. It was the first of many heroic acts. After escaping on the Underground Railroad, she returned to the South to personally lead enslaved people to freedom urging them onwards with the command, live free or die a slave. In the Civil War, she became the first woman to lead unarmed assault and became the head of an espionage and scout network for the Union Army. Her example has made her hero not only to feminists, but to anyone helping others in the fight for liberation.
1: Let's talk about women helping other women. How do we go forward in the crisis? How do we lend a hand as individuals and as companies? So first, I'd like to start with Alif, moving away from female representation on the corporate side. You were one of the original co-founders of what is now well known as the Pita Women's Network, which tries to address all of the questions we've touched on. So personally, what drove your career to get to this point where you decided to do this? And what is the purpose of an organization like this within a corporate environment?
4: The idea really came from um, when I was first on the asset management diversity inclusion board about sort of trying to see how we could uh, promote the idea of, you know, more representation for for women. And I then realized that. uh, some very uh, talented colleagues in other divisions who were already sort of organizing some events for women. And so really on the spot, you know, the idea was born that uh, we should have just a Pick Day Women's Network. And uh, it really is a grassroots organization, but with total buy-in and support from senior management who who realizes that uh, this is an enabler of of change and really trying to do our, our best. The idea is really to raise awareness that there are different level playing fields in the organization. That is true of PICTA as well, and try to do whatever we can to flatten those. I think really the idea is, is quite simple. We all know it behind increasing diversity. It is a business imperative. It's about sort of having, being more successful on the recruitment side, on retention, on promotion, so that we can offer better services to our clients and push business forward. And it's really also important to pause for a second to separate sort of myth from reality. The myth is that this is against men and that this could antagonize men. The reality is that this is really a business imperative, and it's for the better and the greater good for everybody, because um, this is also a win-win for men. I mean, having better ability to service our clients helps men. It also makes them better managers and on a more personal note i think it, they also recognize that the workplace is a more enjoyable place more fun it makes them better parents better spouses and you know really contribute to leaving a better legacy um, for their children or other people's children in terms of an institution we've briefly touched on motherhood
1: and role models so How does your childhood and upbringing play into your career and your view of the world? As parents, what should we do to educate our children to respect women in authority? Marianne, maybe maybe you want to start with that. Yeah, well, interesting that for my book, I interviewed
3: about 50 really, really successful and authoritative women from Janet Yellen downwards and the one thing that they had in common because I asked them all about their childhood was they all said my father believed in me I found that fascinating because I think having that base that your father believes in you gives you confidence that you can excel in what is still basically a male world I think that's the first thing I would say is fathers really take care to believe in your daughters But I think also if the mother and father have equal authority in the household, that's the first thing that children notice when they grow up. And if they see their father having more authority and squishing their mother, then that is what they're going to internalise as, you know, the role that they expect between men and women. Fathers who share the family chores equally with mothers tend to have daughters who are more ambitious. And they have sons who are more respectful of women's authority. So having a much more equal distribution of, of work within the home really affects children's outcomes.
1: Deepa, do you have any, anything to say on this? Uh, yeah, I was thinking, um,
2: I also think this question of respect for authority or respect of authority, it's a very interesting moment in history because respect for authority has collapsed in every institution and every sector of society, with the exception of militaries. Militaries are still regarded with tremendous respect around the world, but almost every other institution, religious institutions, government institutions, a collapse in respect for authority, but an increase in respect for individuals. And I think that maybe this is the key, is this idea that we, Learn to treat people with respect regardless, regardless of their gender, regardless of their color, regardless of their income. And, you know, we all know this, right? You go to a restaurant, well, back when we had restaurants, we will have them again. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, how do you treat the waiter or the waitress? How do you treat the person who's, you know, handling your hat and coat? And the more we can extend gratitude and respect individuals at every level, I think the more we level out that playing field, context doesn't even matter. It's just an, an attitude towards the value of other human beings. And that is actually, I would argue, a quality we would normally associate with the feminine. But great male leaders do that as well.
4: I want to come back to something that uh, mary said, because it, it really resonated and, and, and Pippa has sort of uh, uh, underlined it as well. In my personal experience and observations around me, it is really key to a woman's successful career to have a partner who cares in, in terms of, uh, you know, who's quite egalitarian, uh, in terms of what happens uh, at home, and who creates space and, and shows respect. So. That would really be something that I would uh, emphasize as being key.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Pippa, Marianne, Elif.
4: Thank you. you. It's a pleasure.
0: All of our speakers agree we're living in a time of transformation, but keeping the positive changes that might arise from the pandemic, like flexible and remote working, requires people in power to be made accountable and to make others accountable for conscious and unconscious bias based on gender. It requires men talking to men about these issues, not only to women, and demands set target numbers in recruitment, graduate, and promotion strategies. After this conversation took place, the Bikta Women's Network continued to hold several intersectional workshops around the topic of women in times of change, in addition to their usual annual program. This week's guests on Founding Conversation were Pippa Malmgren, Marianne Siegert, and Elif Aktuk. This series is brought to you by the Pictet Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How to Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrija rosbetayev and Vasily Kristodulu, with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.